Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here, as always, with our great host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Keith, how are you doing today? I am just excited because I think we've got a new logo for the podcast after three years. Whoa! <laughs> we can't show people on the podcast, obviously, but you folks got to check it out. Where can they see the new logo? Is it, is it up somewhere yet? I think with this episode that we're talking about, I think we're going to start uploading it to all the various platforms that this is on, but I'm just excited. You know, we haven't changed much in three years, so I figured why not? Let's change the logo. <laughs> this is big news, folks. We're going to end the podcast right here because, no, actually, we can't do that because you have an excellent guest today. You spoke with Bryony Wynn, the president of Anthem Health Solutions. She brings a lot of different perspectives. You can explain her background, but I think our, our healthcare system obviously needs to be looked at from different perspectives. So what is Bryony Wynn's perspective? How is she looking at things? And it's fun because I've known her for a while and I've been bugging her for a while about trying to come on. And I'm just excited we finally got her to come on. She's been very busy. So she was she came into Anthem and was the the, I believe the chief strategy officer. Wow. And previous to that, she was the chief strategy officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield, North Carolina. And previous to that, she was a partner in McKenzie's healthcare practice, first over in Europe and then coming here in this country. And she's from Zimbabwe as well. So she's got Very just cool. like this really interesting lineage and background that you know, I, I talk about a little bit in the interview about this idea that, you know, she comes at this very differently than say other senior executives at a large payer in this country, in my opinion, because, you know, she comes from a lot of single government, single plan places, right? In terms of what she's experienced over her career, which then gives her a point of view of embedding in a lot of this work, which is why I always get excited talking about her, a lot of this work we've seen take place when she was at Blue Cross Blue Shield, North Carolina with Pat Conway down there about how do you start truly embedding community and social programs into actual healthcare as well, which is in this country, we all know is completely separated, separate budgets, separate approaches, blah, 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 blah. But all of her background, you know, lends itself to a totally different mindset. And she talks about that a lot in the discussion, which I truly appreciated. And another reason why I really wanted to sort of bring her on and, and talk a little bit about that. It's such an important discussion. I think we I've been covering healthcare for a long time. You're obviously investing in healthcare. We've been hearing that our system needs to be fixed, that it's broken. I think people are actually starting to see the cracks. If they hadn't seen them before, I think COVID is showing where we're falling short. Is that driving you anymore, creating new opportunities for you? The fact that I think maybe I'm the only one waking up, but there seems to be a broader awakening of the things we need to fix in this healthcare system. Yeah, it's interesting. I started reading this book this past week on the recommendation of somebody that ties right into what we're talking about, which is this, this book called The Poverty and the myths of healthcare reform. And it's by Dr. Richard Cooper, who actually is deceased now, which is too bad. And I think he died just as the book got done and didn't get it to get out there. And I had, I had never seen this book until somebody told me about it, but it hits right at this point, which is we've spent all of this time on unwanted variation of care, quality controls, quality reporting. And this book slices it in half to this topic area that, that she also brings up, which is 
regardless of all of that, the demographics in a certain geo and a certain zip code fundamentally drive a lot of the healthcare costs, a lot of the healthcare outcomes, a lot of healthcare use and lack of use. And this fully incorporation when, you know, everyone around this country, you know, you know, through COVID, through George Floyd, we had to go through those episodes to really start, you know, everybody talking about health equity. And now we're bringing that to bear in some of these roles with some of these people like her that are starting to stand up and really try to stand up programs inside of large health plans like Anthem, which is, you know, across 14 different states, you know, we're not going to see that impact immediately, but if we have more people like her in these roles with that type of mindset, I think we can really go a long way. And again, that was another big part of the discussion. Excellent. Something that's being talked about at every major medical device company as well. I'm glad. I think it's a high time we started having these conversations. All right. Well, I hope folks enjoy this conversation with Bryony Wynn, the president of Anthem Health Solutions. Okay. Well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. I have to say, I've been after this guest for a long period of time, and she finally said yes, which I'm, I'm very happy about. But I wanted to welcome you, Bryony Wynn, who's the president of Anthem Health Solutions. We're really excited to have you on finally. Keith, say thank you so much. It's great to be here. And as I was saying in the beginning, we're starting to morph a little bit into this idea of having a little bit of a mini series, if you will, for podcasts that are such a thing, which I, I think we've just kind of fallen into. And we really wanted to start focusing in on women, successful women health executives. And, you know, you've been at the top of my list for a while, and I, I'm, I'm ecstatic to have you to kick this off and go from here. But, but as I always say, we always want to try to start with trying to get to know you and trying to understand sort of, and you have such an interesting background, which I think everybody's gonna be so excited to hear. So can you just give us an idea of sort of how you ended up at Anthem and how you ended up in healthcare? Yeah, Keith, absolutely. And I'll, you know, I'll start by saying I'm really excited to be here in the capacity of a woman health leader. I get a bit of a masterclass of that at Anthem with Gail Boudreau. And it's really, you know, I feel very fortunate to learn from her. But it also is a big thing in our industry still that so many of our colleagues and associates are women. And if you look sort of industry-wide, it's well north of 70%, and yet so many, uh, you know, a much smaller proportion of our leaders. And that is something that we, you know, we clearly need to work on forever, but particularly coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, so a little bit about me. I'm Zimbabwean. It is a country just above South Africa in Southern Africa, for those of you who don't know where that is. I do joke and say, if you don't, don't worry about it at all. I didn't know where Indianapolis, Indiana was until far more recently than I'd like to admit. Grew up there, eldest of five children, to a very sort of middle-class mom and dad. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I think growing up in the developing world really gave me a sense for what in the U.S. we talk about as social drivers of health or social determinants of health. And it's much easier there. It's just very clear that obviously what you eat and where you live and the type of facilities that you have access to influence your health. It's also basically gave me a sense right from the beginning that I wanted to have social impact as part of what I wanted to drive in the world. And I always knew that I wanted to do this regardless of you know, what kind of field that I pursued. Did a whole bunch of things. In college, I actually majored in Shakespearean English and philosophy. I write beautiful iambic pentameter slides, and that was uh, pretty much all I could offer to the business world. 
did a master's degree in international development and then joined McKinsey after that. And to be honest, that was very much shaped by my developing world background as well. McKinsey was one of the only employers during the recession that would give foreigners a visa in the UK. And so uh, no joke, I had 102 applications. I had four interviews and McKinsey was the only person that gave me a job. Wow. After college. And it was, you know, primarily visa related. Came to the US really following my husband, which is another big part of being in a dual career couple or a woman in business as well. He uh, went to the University of Chicago to do his MBA. And I uh, transferred with McKinsey and was basically put on a project for a local blues plan where the idea was to assess a bunch of plans for partnership. And I didn't even know what a health plan was. I assumed that I'd be given a bunch of business cases in a kind of private equity type way. And I'd be like, this is a good business case or plan. And this is a bad business case or plan. And clearly that wasn't what it was. It was, you know, looking across the blue system and and thinking about partnership opportunities as a system. But it really was uh, quite an interesting entry into, into healthcare. Fast forward a bit, made partner at McKinsey, primarily working with health plans on government business. And I don't take this lightly, but I joke and say that I think CEOs of these companies took it better from a foreign accent than they did from an American in a highly politicized Obamacare environment. That look, you can choose to play in the ACA or not play, but it's a business decision. And particularly if you choose to be a local or single state plan, you've already said no to 49 states. So you've got to be very careful about what you say no to within the one that you've chosen to, to play in. As a partner, spent my time sort of 50% on that kind of work and 50% working actually for the government, which I found incredibly fulfilling. Worked for a number of states, also worked for CMMI, which is where I met Patrick Conway. When he decided to become CEO of Blue Cross North Carolina, I joined him as chief strategy officer. Over time, moved to be chief strategy officer of Anthem, which was very much a continuation of what I have loved about working with the Blues my whole career in the U.S., And then a couple of months ago, became president of Anthem Health Solutions here. I don't think I realized the blue lineage so much there. So that's really, that's really helpful, actually. Yeah. But when you think about how you grew up and you think about some of your early impressions, does that impact sort of your view of U.S. healthcare? Does that kind of your point of people listening to you differently? I mean, you have a different voice than, say, most because of really how you grew up and where you grew up. No, it certainly impacts my take on the world. And then how I lead. So the first thing I would say is health is such a fundamental enabler to everything that we hold dear in the U.S. and globally. It is an enabler of the kinds of decisions you can make economically. It's an enabler of the kind of freedoms that you can experience and the kinds of things that you can do. And I think I see that or feel that much more acutely because I've seen what happens in situations where you do not have it and where you don't have it from an extreme variety, like you don't have access to the kinds of vaccinations that the developed world do. And you, you know, you get diseases like polio, which shouldn't exist or should never have existed and were pretty common when I grew up and where I grew up. And then I see it in smaller cases where you just don't have adequate access to medical care or high quality medical care. And It wasn't uncommon, for example, for eight to 10 women to share a room when you were having a baby in Zimbabwe. And it was a big surprise to me when I had my first child in Chicago. I didn't I didn't even expect, you know, a room to yourself. And it was 
just, you know, what everybody had here. You know, certainly that affect the way I lead. I also just take it from a moral lens. We have a moral imperative to give everybody the best foundation they can to thrive. And healthcare is a massive part of that. And I take this incredibly seriously from a, this is not just another industry, albeit a high-performing and expensive, you know, 18% of GDP industry, and we provide employment, which is incredibly important. But this is an industry that really sets the foundation for people's lives forever. Yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, some of your past experiences and you start thinking about, you know, your lens from a payer, even like, you know, the government experience you're talking about or, or the blues experience you're talking about. And then you think about the community and social welfare side of things like that was not a church and state discussion back where you grew up, where here in the States, it's such a church and state discussion. It's trying to come together as health equity becomes to the rise. But my guess is that probably had to be a little bit of a transition and thought too, even from where the monetary dollars sit for some of those programmatic sort of thematics. You know, it's been a massive transition for me. And it's made me a very strong believer in incentives, which sounds really basic, but actually the whole discussion around payment incentives and what we pay for signals what we value is, you know, it's still an evolving one in the US. Certainly the CMS Innovation Center started a big movement, or at least, you know, accelerated a massive movement around that only 10 years ago. I think the other church and state discussion here is what is public versus what is private. And that too is not one that I grew up with. And there are a couple of learnings that have come out of all of this for me. So one is we really need to redefine health. And certainly in an anthem context, the way I talk about this is health is four part. It's physical health, behavioral health, social health and social drivers and pharmacy. And the reason why I say those four things, I think if you look at the practical levers that you can pull at scale as a payer, those are the four to really make an integrated difference in people's lives. The second big learning for me is the delivery of health and healthcare is a big P and small p political discussion and is highly cultural. And look, I, I am not dogmatic here. I think there are many ways to skin a cat. I think you can deliver great healthcare in multiple modalities. I think you've got to be a bit thoughtful around the environment and the culture of the place that you are working in. My family live in the UK at the moment, and I think the NHS is on balance a terrific system. I think they deliver some really great care, and it's very cultural to the people of Great Britain. You know, in their Olympic ceremony, there was an, an entire dance dedicated to the NHS and NHS workers, and they feel it very deeply. And I think the private sector and the innovation that comes from a more capitalist mindset and thinking about partnership as opposed to government ownership is highly cultural in the US. And I think that you need to sort of really put your roots in what people believe to be able to have the most impact. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. Like I think about this all the time, which is something that is not discussed, especially in your position and the stages you sit on, it's something really you should talk about more. This idea of cultural attributes of different systems, I think, is grossly misunderstood, especially in this country. I often talk about this idea of sort of, I say sometimes capitalism running amok, but it's really the the collision of capitalism and socialism in this country where the socialism side of this country culturally can't get their head around. And so we live in this private, public kind of quasi kind of arena. But I really think it's an incredibly important point 
that you're saying right now, the difference between NHS, I've also spent some time in NHS doing some work in my premier days around quality and safety. And it's just stark the point you're making, in my opinion. And I, and I think more people need to understand that. And I think you more than anybody else, given sort of your background and your roles is, is a great person to think about that. Tell those kind of stories to get people to think about it. When we go into Anthem, Anthem is such an interesting brand to me in that it's this kind of like 14 state big blues kind of thing. And I'm not so sure a lot of people really understand Anthem and Gail has done so much since she's been there in terms of trying to change a bunch of stuff. It would be great to hear from you like if you were talking to your children, you know, how would you describe Anthem? And then we could talk a little bit about like your role. Obviously, you were in strategy and then you have this new role. It'd be interesting to hear even what, you know, health solutions means within that construct. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, at the base level, Anthem is a, in terms of identity, it is a collection of blues plans. And we come from very local roots, you know, really deriving our strength from the same strengths that the blue system comes from. The Blues are a collection of 30-odd health plans, which all operate as independent companies across multiple states. There are a number that are multi-state. Anthem is the largest of those. In our commercial business, we uh, operate as a Blues plan, and that is in the 14 states. Beyond that, we have a number of JVs and partnerships in government business, Medicare and Medicaid, where we operate differently. You know, a Merigroup in in some states and Healthy Blue in others. We have terrific partnerships with Blue Cross of Louisiana and Blue Cross of North Carolina, to name a couple, where we jointly deliver Medicaid to the citizens of those states. As you mentioned before, I have a long history with the Blues, and I really love the system. I think there is something incredibly special about the associates that we work with, who really do live and work locally on behalf of their family members and their neighbors and their church communities. And they feel like they are delivering something special at a very local level. I think as you look at the evolving healthcare landscape, there's a lot written about and talked about what, where do you need scale and what is innovation versus innovation at scale. And I think there's something special about Anthem in particular with its national breadth. And so the holy grail for us is how do we deliver locally with the scale and impact of a national. Right. And then within that, so you have the clear lines of differentiated sort of payer businesses. Then you have, I think, a recently announced sort of pharma movement and, and PBM strategy within that. Does that fit underneath health solutions or what is the makeup of health solutions? Yeah, no, that doesn't. So health solutions is essentially our entire organization dedicated to working with health providers. So think about it as network, contracting, clinical, where we do, you know, CM, DM, UM type work. Certainly our entire value-based payment and, and network contracting organization, a lot of the operational work regarding sort of claims, setup and adjudication from a health policy perspective, and then actually enterprise analytics. And that's because you know, when you think about what the next frontier is in healthcare, everything around it is data and analytics driven. And so that's the ambit of my, my world. We work on behalf of the business units who work on behalf of our uh, consumers. So think about government business and commercial business, which are the two big business divisions of Anthem. And then we have another one, which is our diversified business group in Ingenio. And that essentially is our PBM, Ingenio. And then a set of care delivery assets 
where we are working to deliver care mostly around complex and chronic conditions. So if you think Aspire is one of our assets, it's palliative care, care more, who we all know about really around complex conditions, and then Beacon, which is our behavioral health. And from a health solutions perspective, we really believe being a lifetime partner in health is both better for the system and the right move for Anthem. And so we're looking at big collaborative care partnerships. We've announced a number with Privia, with Alidade, with Agilon recently on the primary care front, and we'll be looking at more. But yes, the whole scale acquisition of systems or doctors is not in our strategic future. You got ahead of me because that's where I was going next, which is <laughs> yeah. when I've talked to most Blues plans and, and even when we had Pat Gilligan on not too long ago, I was kind of poking and prodding at him a little bit about, you know, would we ever start seeing some of the regional Blues plans start taking the strategy of taking on more kind of direct provider, you know, and Alidade, to your point, is a much more of kind of a risk services organization, if you will, comparatively to saying, hey, we're going to employ and own all the various docs. But it sounds like you guys are staying pretty true to that, that strategy as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't think it's, you know, we will never own care delivery. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is when you come from the breadth of relationships that Blues Plans and Anthem in particular has locally, it's much more effective to partner with that breadth. And so that is absolutely our our primary strategy. And how do you view sort of some of the things that you've seen? Because you obviously had involvement even when you're at Blue Cross North Carolina. How do you see some of the similarities and differences at scale to what you see at Anthem compared to what you saw, say, at, at Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina? It's a good question. I mean, I think Blue Cross North Carolina is a terrific plan. Really, a number of people there have done such compelling work, particularly in the value-based care space. I think Anthem benefits from a lot of the same assets or endowments. You know, large partnership-based, broad-scale networks of providers, deep penetration with consumers, particularly in the commercial space, but, you know, increasingly broadly. And so I think a lot of the strategies that were successful and are continuing to be successful in North Carolina are things that we're excited about continuing to pursue at Anthem. And certainly the base layer of we believe that there should be a primary care quarterback for every member and that primary care is an inherently underinvested in area of the healthcare delivery system is core to that. And so we have made big movements over the last 12 to 18 months in accelerating Anthem's primary care strategy. I think you know, there are a number of differences as well. What are the kinds of things that you can do when you're working with 45 million members and consumers versus four? And a lot of investment in more integrated whole health, I think you can do with this kind of scale. The blues always work with, how do we work with pharmacy? You know, no single state blue is ever going to have their own PBM, likely. Anthem can afford to do that. The same with Beacon and behavioral health. So where there are big parts of the system where, hey, we may have to partner even more broadly than just our own, we can afford to have a central asset that helps with accelerating this integrated care approach. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then within that, we kind of touched on this in the beginning a little bit, but but moving more into sort of payment mechanisms, you know, your view on value-based care, you know, is I ask this question a lot lately because my opinion has changed a lot over the last decade on this topic. Is BBC and the programs associated with it, you know, the various flavors, is it really the way through? Or is it one of the levers that is the way through into the future of trying to really rein in costs because, you know, you're thinking every single day about total medical costs and how do we manage that? 
you know, let alone the government thinking about it and us going to 20% of GDP, let us us potentially bankrupting Medicare at some point in time here. You know, how do you think that gets reined in around VBC or not, I guess is, is the big question. There are two fundamental roles of a payer, which is around how do we partner and how do we pay? And I think the combination of those two things is the only way to deliver higher quality, lower cost care. I do think the payment one is really important because how you pay for care signals what you value. And when you pay for care, that is driving affordability and at higher quality and really incents everybody to row in the same direction, that's an immensely powerful lever. But there are a number of things to wrap around that Like, do we all know we're rowing in the same direction? Do you have the data to see in a real-time or almost real-time way what's happening with a specific member? And having some upside or some downside is not always the same as the true value-based care. So to answer your question, you know, bluntly, I think value-based care is absolutely not a way, but the only way forward. I think we need to continue to evolve what we mean by value. I was very heartened to see MMI's strategy come out. I am very excited about the continuous improvement mentality that that really well thought through document envisioned. And I think big payers need to do the same. I think when we started with value, we talked about quality bonuses. And we were like, that is the beginning of value-based care. I think that shouldn't be counted as value anymore. Value is true risk sharing and or incentive sharing between you, a payer and a care provider. Other things I think we need to think about, and I'm sure you've explored this with some of the other people that have, have been here, is I heard Kyle Ambrister, who's the CEO of Signify the other day, call this world PMPM piranhas. And how do you, you know, break up all the different pieces of the healthcare dollar? And I sometimes laugh with uh, some of the partners that come to us and they're like, this is how much we'll save you and this is how many stars you'll get. And I'm like, if I count up everything that I've heard about this week, we're going to be a 23-star plan. And it's a little bit the same with uh, the PM, PM, Piranha world. Reallocating risk or allocating risk is an incredibly thoughtful exercise. There is only 100% to go around. I think payers play an incredibly valuable role in coordinating the ecosystem. I think there is a set of risk that should be held as part of care provision, sometimes by a, a true GP, PCP. But in more complex cases, very possibly by a nephrologist or an oncologist. And then I do think there is a small amount of risk that should be on the consumer. And when we talk about value-based care, I think we need to think about this entire ecosystem, not just the relationship between payer and provider. I think there was a move, especially on employer-sponsored insurance, where we potentially in this country made consumers own too much of the risk and risk where they couldn't control. And that's you get into real affordability challenges. But I don't think it's an either or. And I think we set up here, like so many dichotomies in the US healthcare system, you are either consumer should be incented or providers should be incented. incented. And I think when you think about value-based care properly, it's the integration of all of these. Who is the appropriate risk owner for that piece of risk? I think that's a great point. And it's the irony of sort of the value-based care movement or the risk movement is, as you know, most things start with CMS and the commercial folks follow. Ironically, when you start playing out things like CMMI, I mean, Patrick, as you know, was one of the longest running leaders 
there. Right. Is that we can all remember. Like when he left, everybody was like, ah. Oh. And so you start thinking about administration changes, the amount of leaders we've had at CMMI. I, I had the privilege of working with both Don Berwick and Dr. Rick Gilfillan for many years when I was at Premier and some of the things that they were very aggressive on and still obviously talking about that today, they change. You know, Don was only there for a year and a half as the administrator and, you know, Rick was there for a good amount of time and well, Patrick was there too. But I just, I have this jaded sense of me now of how many times we flip over the leaders because it's the nature of our process. So the flips question back to you is like, should really the commercial folks that have longer tenor management teams, longer tenant programs, and have a lot more risk around managed Medicaid, managed Medicare, and if you take a light out of CMMI's recent discussion to your point about how many of those groups they want in certain ACOs and certain programs, should the commercial teams and leaders really be the ones setting the agenda and having CMS in time just kind of tag into the, some of those programs. And I know it's they're the largest payer, so it, it seems a little goofy to say that, but it feels like you all have the longest tenure to really put the amount of change into the system over a longer period of time. So it's just sort of some of my views. I'm curious your opinions. You know, Keith, it's, it's a very interesting topic. I think collectively we just need to acknowledge that this is a partnership and is going to be. And I go back to the beginning of this conversation, which is, are we a private system or are we a public system? Well, the truth is we're a hybrid system and we're going to continue to be a hybrid system pretty much for the foreseeable future. And, you know, if we had had this chat this time last year, or at least sort of early November last year, a discussion around a single payer or uh, at least uh, government sponsored Medicare for all system and the repeal of the ACA were both on the table. And those are very different directions for the healthcare system. And I think where we are now is we're in a world where it's much more evolution versus revolution, which I think is a very good environment for peers and incumbents to take the lead in a much more compelling way. I will say that across most payers books, you know, and certainly across the country, over 55% of healthcare is paid for by the government. And then the rest of it is paid for pretty much an equal measure by consumers, out-of-pocket health insurance premiums, and by employers. And what this is, is it's a massive social collaboration, and we just need to see it that way. I think commercial payers, and it's funny saying commercial, what we really mean is, is private or non-government, right? Because we have a lot of government business, certainly need to take a massive leadership role around what is sustainability for the system look like. What we're looking at doing is enhanced affordability at greater quality and probably with a better experience as well. How are we going to do that sustainably over time? And increasingly, how are we going to do that when you go from the individual market to Medicaid, when you go from your commercial sponsored plan into Medicare? I mean, I think this idea of being a lifetime partner for a consumer is something that pretty much only the payers can, you know, take ownership of. Yeah, and that's the interesting part too, right? Because if you think about the growing reliance on private payers taking on managed Medicaid, MA, you know, and MA's explosion, right? So things are coming from MedPAC into CMS and others in terms of the way to approach it. But the ball typically ends up more and more with a lot of folks like you all sort of managing that book of business and time on behalf of the government sort of payroll. So I think there's a really interesting debate to be had in time about how this kind of private quasi-public, to your point, sort of approach sort of takes hold 
to sort of get to the point we started with, which is total medical costs. Like, how do we really do bend the cost curve here in partnership? I think your, your point about partnership with the providers is an important one, let alone the folks that are integrating those two. And, and that, that kind of leads me sort of more towards sort of a couple of last questions with you, which is really around innovation. Because I think, you know, when we talk about value-based care and things like that, we are talking about innovation. We're talking about fundamentally changing the way we actually deliver care. How does Anthem and how do you think about innovation? You know, I hear a lot about Anthem doing a lot of interesting stuff on the innovation front. I'd love to hear sort of your frontline perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things I'd say. I'd say to start with innovation is as much a process and a culture as it is any one solution or any one event. And I don't think it should be antithetical to your strategy. It should be driving your strategy. It is a tool. And that's how we think about it as Anthem. And clearly, that's how I think about it in my in my new role, where we are innovating against two main areas. And they're the ones I mentioned earlier, how we pay and how we partner. And on the how we pay piece, it is really integrating what are the leading practices in, in value-based care, particularly around the primary care provider, and how do we then make that beyond physical health? but really draw in the components of social drivers, pharmacy, and behavioral health too. So how do we think about a primary care partnership with a beacon backing for behavioral health? And how do we make sure that we're bringing in what we call whole health data? So beyond just your medical health or even medical and behavioral, but really integrating that social component. I think about it more programmatically than about any sort of one specific area. But we have some nice success stories around maternal health, for example, where we've worked with um, Representative Lauren Underwood on the Momnibus Bill, which really is a sort of very nice public-private partnership innovation that brings in all four of those areas in a meaningful way. And then I think the second part of it is how do we partner? And how do we join care providers and members and convene this ecosystem in a different way? And I use the word convene purposefully. I, again, we don't need to own everything. I'm highly supportive of smaller business and private business and partnerships, but we do need to have some kind of convening structure. And I think a payers are well situated to play that role. So you would have heard us speak a lot about our digital platform for health. And that is what we really are talking about when we say the ecosystem that convenes care providers, consumers, partners, employers, and us. Two flagship programs of that are Sydney, which is our consumer-facing portal and app, but really is the way that Anthem members access the entire Anthem and partner ecosystem. And then what we're calling HealthOS, which is the corollary on the care provider side. How do care providers get the right reporting, data, information, and also um, communicate in a more seamless way with both Anthem, but also our members and employers. So those are the big, big pieces of innovation that we're looking at. And when you think about the market, you've been in it, so much, especially on the innovation side and some of the work you do in North Carolina as well. And, you know, we often talk about this idea that there's a set of things being reimagined as a provider. There's a set of things being reimagined as a payer and a combination of those two things. When you think of a lot of the upstarts that I hate saying upstarts anymore because they're getting so big, they're not really upstarts anymore. But, you know, Bright, Oscar, Devoted, all these players that are getting all of this capital, right, which is, you know, the most fascinating part right now, there's so much capital to deploy, they have almost as much access to capital as some of the incumbents now. How do you think about them? Do you think about them as potential partners downstream? Do you think of them as competitive threats? Do you think of them as both? I'm just curious, sort of, on that front. 
So I think of the entire landscape as a world of frenemies, to be honest. I think there is a lot of gray. I think in many places, everybody is a potential partner as well as, as a potential threat. And I agree with you, these are not startups anymore. You know, these are big companies and increasingly big in an M&A realm as well. There is so much startup M&A going on. And when, you know, you merge a unicorn with a unicorn, you're, you're now getting a $2 billion plus dollar company that is somewhat material. What I would say is that sustainability is the name of the game in healthcare. It is no good lowering prices massively one year, knowing you're going to have to increase them in two years' time. I do really value some of these smaller companies for what they've shown as the art of the possible. I think it gets much more harder when you have to innovate at scale. The kinds of things that you can do when you write letters to members is awesome at 30,000 members and much harder at 45 million members. And then there are trade-offs between the affordability challenge and the experience challenge, right? And so what I would say, and I, you know, I say this as much in Anthem as a, as a company that has been really successful over time as I do to some of these startups who are very successful, is a combination of an eye on sustainability and then deep leadership humility with the people who came here before us. Nobody's aim was ever to have a broken healthcare system. Nobody's aim was to have an unsustainable, economically unsustainable system. There are a set of choices that have led us where we are. And I think we need to approach what we're doing with the deep humility that we are actually going to make this better. And honestly, we say it all the time to people who come from outside of the industry. A lot of these startups will tell you, oh, they think they can do it better in consumer banking, but they don't understand how difficult it is in healthcare. And there's some truth to that. It's the same truth when you're an incumbent, right? I get a lot of PE firms saying to me often, like, come work with us. It would be, you'd have so much more impact. You'd be able to do things faster. And I'm like, look, it's not as if there are a whole lot of people who aren't thoughtful or who aren't smart about the healthcare system sitting in incumbents, right? It's just a potentially slower journey with a lot more track record of sustainability. I, I would say let's end it right here because that was the best soundbite ever. But I could not agree with you more. And I think that's the entire intent of this podcast platform is making people understand what great people like you are doing inside of the incumbents, that that's real transformation. I think there's a gross discounting of the amount of transformation work that's taken place in a lot of these incumbents. And on that front, the other kind of follow-up question as we, as we close out here is like, you know, when you think about the market and the market changing healthcare over the next decade or two as well, how should these newer companies, because you guys do a lot of this, I know, and some of the work we do with you all, how should they think about partnering with you? How should they think about interacting with you or even contacting you to think about some of the stuff that it's not to, you know, get you to the 23 star plan, but it's, it's to fundamentally, hopefully give you some new innovations to work with on a partnership. How should they think about interacting with Anthem? Yeah, great question. So I think the, the answer is reach out and we have a whole bunch of internal processes that we will make sure that you get to the right place. And we're getting increasingly better at this. Second thing I'd say is be honest. Like, what have you actually delivered versus what do you want to deliver? And we're very up for what you want to deliver, and we can probably help with that. But it's no good pretending you have a track record if you don't. Like, let us be all on the same page as, you know, where we can innovate and from what starting point. And I am equally honest about the payment cycles or the implementation cycles that it takes to work with, you know, somebody as big as Anthem. You know, it's not always easy. And then the third thing I'd say is a little bit where what I said in the last comment, which is come with a little bit of humility. There are reasons some of these things haven't worked. And hey, we're all up to try again. 
but at least listen to why this didn't work in the beginning or why something similar had a different outcome to what we could have expected. The final thing I say, and I say it slightly tongue in cheek, but not really, is everybody is a value-based care, AI-driven social drivers of health company. And while that is wonderful, if you could narrow it down to be slightly more specific for me on what you're actually going to do, that would also be helpful. (laughs) This has been awesome. Everything that I thought and the reason why I kept pestering you to be on. So this has been terrific. And I, I know you're very busy. I can't thank you enough for being on, but any last thoughts as we close out here? Well, it's been wonderful to be here, Keith. I really enjoyed the conversation. And it's always nice to chat about some of the incumbent point of view because it's a little less shiny sometimes than the very cool stuff that's happening in the raw startup world in our in our industry. I will say something coming back to being um, women leaders in healthcare, which is that it is incredibly important to have a diverse set of perspectives at the table. And that's not only sex and gender, but it is also that. And women's voices in healthcare and what it means to look at whole health versus women's health is incredibly important. And so I encourage all the women leaders in our industry to step up. I think it's incredibly important now coming out of COVID. What we have seen is a lot of primarily caregiving women at the middle management level leave our industry. And so I think we're going to be fine from a diverse perspective view for the next five years, because there are a number of senior women who are already where they are. I think we're going to have a real challenge going forward. And so anything that men and women you can do personally to really support the people who have been caregivers of young children who haven't been at school for two years, of aging parents who couldn't leave their homes, this is disproportionately fell on the women of our industry. And if we don't do something exceptional, it's not just going to fix itself. We need to have very thoughtful plans of how we're going to account for this, this problem over the last two years going forward. I think that's a, a great endpoint. You know, as you noted in the beginning, I think Gail and yourself are incredible examples of this diverse leadership and successful leadership. And again, I can't thank you enough for being on, but it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.